Hey, everybody, Kevin Grossman here, president of Talent Board and the Candidate Experience Awards. We want you to join us for our annual Candy Awards virtual conference, sustaining the candy continuity on November 17th and 18th, where we'll celebrate improving recruiting, hiring, and the candidate experience, and of course, the 2021 Candy Award winners. To learn more and register, go to thetalentboard.org. Now enjoy the podcast. What can organizations do in this challenging time? I think the first thing is, especially as we're kind of navigating this time of uncertainty, we're returning to work after all that has happened. The first thing is to recognize. So employers need to recognize that employees are now in the driver's seat. You're listening to the Candy Shop Talk podcast brought to you by Talent Board and the Candidate Experience Awards Benchmark Research and hosted by Kevin W. Grossman. Talent Board is the first nonprofit research organization focused on elevating and promoting a quality candidate experience. The Candy Shop Talk podcast welcomes Laura Putnam, a workplace wellness expert, international speaker, and author of Workplace Wellness That Works. Listen in on how improving candidate experience impacts recruiting and the business bottom line. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the Candy Shop Talk podcast. You are a workplace wellness expert and author of Workplace Wellness That Works. So before we dive into the rest of the show, tell us a little more about you and that work that you do. And I didn't mean to rhyme. Well, it's so nice to be on your show. Thanks so much, Kevin. And um, I'm the author of Workplace Wellness That Works as opposed to Workplace Wellness That Does Not Work. There you go. That's a good point, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But, uh, you know, just so happy to be here. Excellent. So we continue, unfortunately, to live in this upside down world, pandemic ravaged upside down world. Anybody, especially in, in in our community of recruiting, hiring and retention that's been in the space for 15, 20 plus years, we've never seen this world that we're in right now. You've got employees quitting in record numbers continually. You have got fewer people applying for jobs at the end of the day. It's taking a lot more investment to actually source the right candidates that a lot of companies across industries for those jobs. I mean, there's pay, you know, and pay disparities aside, which we could do a whole another show on. What else should employers be focused on in regards to recruiting and retaining? So I want to first speak to your first question and just fill you in a little bit more on my back and then I'm happy to address this. Let's do it. So the first thing is in terms of kind of explaining who I am and kind of how I fit in this space of workplace wellness, which is basically this idea that we're facing this tidal wave of poor health and well-being that's only been exacerbated by the pandemic and all that's come with it. So what do we do? And my background is I call myself a former urban public high school teacher, former gymnast, former professional dancer turned movement builder in the world of health and wellness. So really thinking about how to leverage every workplace to not just start a program of well-being, but to literally start a movement of well-being. You know, it's interesting real quick about that. It's not actually that much of a stress. It's interesting when you said you've been a professional dancer, which I did not know. And the way that you had to take care of yourself physically, as well as mentally, right? To do that. It's not much of a segue either of, of, of thinking about wellness. But anyway, keep going. Well, it absolutely is. And it's, you know, especially being a gymnast as well, it's not only the physical preparation, but also the mental preparation, which is so much a part of our conversation today around what does it mean to be well. So looking at kind of 
where we are as a world uh, and what we can do about this. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, I've been in this space for a long time. I started my company Motion Infusion in 2008. And one of the hardest parts of my job was making the case for well-being at work. And then we have this pandemic. <laughs> Here's the case for well-being. And every single business has experienced firsthand that yes, it really does matter that their employees are happy and healthy. Without that, they don't have a, a workforce to work with. So what can organizations do in this challenging time? I, I think the first thing is, especially as we're kind of navigating this time of uncertainty, we're returning to work after all that has happened. The first thing is to recognize. So employers need to recognize that employees are now in the driver's seat. And the second is that they need to discern. So what is it that employees actually want? Their expectations have changed. They want more meaning. They want more flexibility. They want more inclusivity and they want more well-being. And they want more well-being on their terms, not on the employer's terms. So they're not wanting wellness that's being done to them. They want workplace wellness and well-being that is being done for them. So every organization, this is their moment that they need to rise up and step up to meet this new normal, this new level of expectation. And so they need to be doing that by thinking about prioritizing well-being, expanding their definition of well-being, and then taking meaningful action, which I can talk more about. We, my wife and I, had that. So once when everything changed, like for all of us, you know, March of 2020, I had already been working virtually for 12 years and, and remotely and was very much used to that and traveled a lot, obviously not last year <laughs> or this year very much, but used to. And then my wife used to do more in work in the community with the organization she works for, but they had to virtualize everything else too. And then, you know, our two daughters, all distance learning for well over a year. And we thought we were doing pretty well compared to some families and, and we knew that, you know, people who, was, who had to work outside of the workplace, I mean, out of the home still and had to go to work during this this world that we've been living in with kids having to distance learn. And I think we're now, we're pretty well adjusted folks, but we're we're still feeling, really starting to feel the fallout over the past year and a half more than we thought we would, even though things are kind of moving in the right direction. But I mean, for us personally, but for so many other people, I think, you know, this is why we are seeing what you said of like, no, I, this is how I want to work from now on. I mean, I cannot go back to that. <laughs> right. And, and I think every single one of us had a moment in which the pandemic became real for us. So the pandemic became real for me when I went to the grocery store and I couldn't find any toilet paper. The pandemic became real for me when my kids had to come back from school. The pandemic became real for me when I woke up in the morning and I couldn't smell my coffee. I'd lost my sense of smell. And I'm saying this generally speaking, uh, the pandemic became real for me when I lost my husband. You know, we have experienced this on so many different levels and some of us are lucky enough to have been spared from the most difficult aspects of it. And the, the permutations of it have been immense. There's not only been the physical aspect of it, but the mental fallout as well. I've had five people in my direct network who lost their lives during this time from the mental fallout, not from the physical fallout, but from the mental fallout. 
Wow. I think there's going to be data and statistics for years to come that we don't even, we're not even aware of yet of the, the mental health impact of what. Absolutely. I mean, there was a study that came out in June of 2020 showing that rates of depression tripled across uh, the United States uh, during the pandemic. You know, and then we look at how does that interface with the workplace? There was another study that came out just one month later showing that half of employees are afraid to talk about their mental health with their boss. So we've got these really crucial mismatches that are happening that especially in this time we have to rise up to meet those mismatches and I want to jump to something you know one of the questions that I had that I put together for you because that kind of is a nice segue to this when something happens like a physical illness to any of us and like cancer for example and of course I'm not discouraging any anybody who's ever you know had family members who've had cancer we tend to more viscerally rally around that person we hold fundraisers you you know, we go after that ailment, right? But not when it comes to mental health. Not when it comes to mental health and well-being. We don't do that. Yeah, we're really afraid to. So we kind of take the approach of, especially in the workplace, you know, give them some resources and kind of tuck them away and push them out of the way and, you know, let them deal with that problem. And one story that comes to mind, this actually happened in September of 2019. There was one naval ship that in one week had three suicides. Imagine that. One ship one week, three suicides. When was that again? It was September of 2019. I vaguely remember something about that. So this was before the pandemic. I know, before pandemic. So, right, so right, right. you know, all these issues that we're talking about, the seeds had already been planted and it's only been exacerbated by the pandemic. So this came on the heels of the Navy having invested heavily in mental health and prevention. But the way it looked, as it looks in most organizations that I interface with is that it's like, let's create some resources, i.e. employee assistance programs, and let's just make people aware of these resources and kind of identify those people who are at risk and connect them with the resources as opposed to addressing the root causes themselves. So in the case of this naval ship, what if the ship's leaders had paid attention to what I call as uncovering the hidden factors. They would have paid attention to things like complaints about the relentless drive with so little time off. They would have paid attention to the rise in accidents, including fatal ship collisions. They would have paid attention to the high pressure environment. In other words, what they would have done is they would have put less burden on the individual and they would have focused more on the environment and the culture that the individuals are operating within that are driving them to that place in the first place. So it's not to say that there aren't individual issues at hand, but I think that in a lot of our well-intended workplace wellness and mental health initiatives, we have focused too much on the individual and failed to address those larger causes. Do you think, and again, I'm definitely not an expert in this regard, but based on what I do know, that that is mostly a Western phenomenon too, isn't it? I know that you get into other cultures, you know, and other in Asian countries and, and maybe even in Latin America, other culturally that it is more about the whole and not the individual. We live in such a hyper individualistic society, especially today if anybody's been paying attention to the news for the past few years. But, and it is one of the, I would argue, it's one of the reasons what's been tearing us apart. <laughs> Actually, I couldn't a- agree with you more. In, in, in the world of wellness, we have overplayed the personal responsibility hand and we have underplayed the collective responsibility hand. And we've certainly seen firsthand with COVID that we have to take 
a collective approach to this. My health matters to you and your health matters to me. So when I am vaccinated, I'm protecting not only myself, but my friends, my family, my community, and vice versa. When I mask, I'm protecting myself and I'm protecting others. There is no me without you. And so the only way forward is together, whether we're talking about moving forward beyond the pandemic, or we're talking about improving our health and well-being overall. And I think that's really, really hard in a society that is so individually oriented to be willing to take a more collective approach to this. And obviously that totally intersects with the diversity and inclusion movement and just the increased awareness and focus since last summer, since since the, the death of George Floyd, since the, the social unrest that peaked last year and then just continues now that it's definitely connected to that because being part of an inclusive culture, whether it's in the workplace or wherever, is part of a feeling, a sense of belonging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well-being and DEI go hand in hand. And in fact, I teamed up with a DEI expert. Her name is Karen Catlin, author of Better Allies. And we actually co-created a list of 50 ways that you might have wellness privilege at work. And it includes things like, do I have access to green spaces, both at home and at work? 100 million Americans don't have easy access to a park. Does my boss give me the freedom to decide how I manage my time at work? We know that one of the biggest drivers of stress in the workplace is a lack of control over one's time. Do I have the opportunities to grow my career? Do I get equal airtime in conversations at work? Or am I invisible? Uh, do I feel invisible? Do I get talked over all the time? Do other voices get heard more? I mean, these are a lot of the things that you were talking about with Charlotte Moser. And so that is an important piece in all of this. And this is part and parcel with being well. And it really goes hand in hand with these change expectations that people first and foremost, want to feel like they are cared for. They want to feel like they are seen and they want to feel like they matter. That's well-being in its truest sense. Even if they react in the opposite direction of against their own best interests as well, unfortunately. But that said, I think that, I mean, obviously we've already answered the question and this, these are the reasons why some of these these wellness programs don't have the uptake that they that they really need to have, right? Because the, the, the onus is being put on the individual. Absolutely. It's also, you know, I think a lot of companies have really meant well with their efforts. But the way I like to frame it up is that if you build it as in a workplace wellness program, they, as in the people that you're trying to reach, they will not necessarily come. They will not necessarily engage with those programs. And there's a lot of reasons why. One of them being that there's been too much pressure put on the individual, but also things like over-reliance on rewards and incentives, uh, too many standalone siloed efforts, kind of workplace wellness programs that have nothing to do with business as usual. And we really need to be focusing more on business as usual, as opposed to some kind of program outside of that. Also, a lot of these programs are really negative. So, you know, fill out this health risk assessment, tell us everything that's wrong with you. And then we're going to magically inspire you to fix everything wrong with you. And then I think also a failure to really, really authentically engage leaders and managers as the key drivers. You just brought up a really good point because one of the things, again, if when I relate it to what we see from our, from our in the research that we do, focus more on the candidate experience of applying for jobs, but it relates to that because if there is a continuous disconnect of business leadership to how 
their employees feel, how their candidates feel, what kind of experiences they're having, and then not understanding the impact on their business over time by the sheer volume of people that they end up not hiring and how what their perception of fairness is or lack thereof in their experience of trying to apply for a job definitely can have an impact on their business and their brand. Here's what's interesting though, and I think it's a shadow of the work that has been done and invested in, I hope. So when we look at th this year in our data, so we looked at how those of other races and ethnicities, how they rated their candidate experience. Again, applying for jobs, employers big and small across industries, females and people of color, their ratings in our data this year were much more positive and higher than their white counterparts and men in particular. And I think that we're not, while well, we're not measuring it, but we can connect some dots. I think that the investment being made in trying to equalize the playing field as it relates to all candidates and the amount of the resources and the investment that's been made in recruiting individuals across dis dis disparate groups is why we're seeing the differences in the data and the data, the positive differences, which, you know, again, that's it for us. If it's any indicator, it's an indicator that there was definitely more investment made in their experience applying for a job, most of whom did not get hired at the end of the day, but a small percentage did still. So anyway, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that that's what we saw in our data as we're talking about all those things. And we're not measuring wellness. Well, what you're measuring is experience. And um, whether it's in the hiring process or when it's in the actual working experience, we're talking about, you know, what do employees experience when they're at work? Are they healthier and more able to be their best selves because of where they work? Are they healthier, more able to be their best selves because of the boss and the team that they're on or less so? And every manager, whether or not they are aware of it, they are uniquely positioned to either persuade or dissuade their team members from engaging with their well-being. Longstanding Gallup research shows that the manager alone likely counts for up to 70% of the variance of their team members' engagement, both with their work as well as their well-being. We have our own data around the impact of a program that we have called Managers on the Move, which is kind of a leadership meets well-being program that empowers managers to become these multiple of well-being. And what we found is that when managers really take that on, when they lead by example, when they talk about well-being, and when they create some team-based well-being systems and rituals that help to normalize well-being within the context of their team, then it has a really positive trickle-down effect around productivity, around engagement with work, as well as overall well-being. I can speak for myself, but I bet you nobody, and I think that's part of this continuous movement that we're seeing, money is one thing, and I need to put food on the table for my family and, and, and keep a shelter over our heads, but people People don't want to go back to the status quo of work. They don't want to go back to where they didn't feel they belonged. They weren't acknowledged. They weren't included. There wasn't a sense of fostering safety and well-being. They don't want that. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the kind of key calls to action that I'm calling upon all managers, who I call the key permission givers within the workplace. So senior leaders are the kind of the trendsetters. They allocate resources. They say, okay, this is what we're going to do as an organization. But kind of the day-to-day -day permission giving comes from those managers. And so managers, in addition to really kind of explicitly embracing well-being, 
they also need to be building psychological safety within their team and they need to be awakening compassion. What are they doing to really explicitly awaken compassion? And so many of these things are really, really simple practices like, for example, tuning in, noticing, is there someone on my team who is feeling left out? Is there someone on my team who is not getting any airtime? Is Are there some, some cues um, that this uh, team member is not doing well? Those managers really need to be paying attention to those right now and engaging in some really simple practices like having check-ins with their team members every single week for at least five minutes. How are you? What are you working on? And really appreciating people, not just for what they do, but for who they are. And calling everybody back to the office is not the answer necessarily. <laughs> I mean, unless you're, you know, you're, you're doing that on a regular basis. As we wind down the podcast, Laura, today, I wanted to ask, we've been talking a lot about what the employer should do, what the manager should do, the business leaders. What else could just individual contributors do? What can I do? Yeah to help myself. You know, there's three things. The first is to consider for ourselves, what does this mean to me? And the way I like to frame it is, what is me at my best? look like for me. So Maya Angelou once said, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to fully thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. Great way of framing up me at my best. Then the next thing that every individual can do is to study the currents. That is, the currents that I'm kind of swimming in, that I'm operating within, are they pushing me toward enabling me to become my best self? Or am I having to swim upstream? And so it's looking at these things like, do I have wellness privilege or do I not? And then finally, how do I navigate those currents? So given the world that I live in, given given the place that I work, given the boss that I work for, given the people I work with, how do I become my best self? Yes, or I quit. <laughs> Or I could. I mean, well, but I mean, I, all, and all those things were, I completely underscore all those. I think that we still have to take ownership too of where we're at as much as we can and to, to make a difference for ourselves individually as well as for our own families and communities. And hopefully that plays out in the workplace as well. And, and I just want to emphasize, I, I do really think we can't do away with personal responsibility. We do all have a personal responsibility for ourselves, but we also need to really pay attention more to those collective forces, those societal defaults that are really pushing us away from better health and well-being. And the only way we're going to be able to meaningfully address those is if we take collective action. Exactly. You, so you use the word compassion earlier and, and empathy is something that we need to foster more of too, individually as well as collectively for that matter. Laura, this has been a great conversation. One of the last things I always like to ask my guests is that we're always working all the time. Work, 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 work always working. But what else besides work does Laura like to do? Well, I end it with two quotes because I love quotes. Um, the first is, if I could say it, I wouldn't have to dance it. Martha Graham, pioneer in modern dance. So uh, one of the things that I love to do is I love to move. So I love to express my inner gymnast and dancer. It's still there um, with practicing yoga, skiing, dancing, running, walking. And then the second is actually Burt Reynolds. And he said, what matters most in the end are our stories. And I love stories. I love reading stories. I love telling stories. I love listening to stories. And I love creating new ones through new adventures, especially travel, but also just the simple day-to-day -day with family and friends. Agreed. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I was going to say, when you were a professional dancer, what particular style of dance were you focused on? 
Modern and acrobatic. Oh, very nice. That's excellent. My sister was a dancer for many years. It was, was fabulous to watch. And now she's not. Well, no, she's not. No, she's not now. No. Okay. Yeah, not that she's not fabulous to watch, but she's, no, she doesn't dance anymore. But our family, at least pre-COVID, we loved, my wife and I especially, So You Think You Can Dance, the, the dance competition show. Loved was, that. Loved that show so much. And it hasn't been on, not since the COVIDs, but um, really enjoyed that. And there was one of the choreographers that was on early on in those seasons. Um, was her name Mia? I don't remember now. Anyway, it was a joke between my wife and I, because she always would, when there was a really beautiful contemporary dance, she would cry. The choreographer, and we're always like, that made her cry. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to make me cry too. Anyway. Yeah, there's nothing like dance to move us. Oh, no, it's just it's just amazing. And I'm, I'm a writer myself, but I definitely dance is, um, and actually the past year and a half, I now have finally, after all these years, I drum. Now I have, I taught myself how to drum, took online lessons, and that is a passion of mine. So That is awesome. I lived in West Africa loved hearing the drumming. There you go. All all kinds that I've been exper- exposing myself to um, as well. So that's that's excellent. Well, Laura, thanks so much for being on the Candy Shop Talk podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thanks and for having me. You, absolutely. Maybe someday in the future, maybe we'll, we'll meet in person someday. I hope so. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Candy Shop Talk podcast. For more information about Talent Board and the Candidate Experience Awards and Benchmark Research, visit www.thetalentboard.org.